that's small but feisty. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we dig up comic book characters' graves and misappropriate the bodies, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the titan of terror herself, Jessica Frazier. It is I. <laughs> yeah. Today we are extremely fortunate to have comics writer Daniel D.G. Chichester. Nice to see you both. Thank you so much for taking the time. You're actually our first official guest on the podcast. Wow. Okay. I'm going to take that as a good thing. That's great. Yeah. Well, if you're new to the show, the purpose of our podcast, as always, is to look at the weirdest, silliest, coolest moments of comic books and talk about them in ways that are fun and informative. In this case, we are looking at also the spookiest moments and how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Today, we're going to be talking about horror comics. We're looking at their overall history, as well as their resurrection at Marvel in the early 1990s, and how it helped give birth to one of my favorite comic characters, an undead antihero who went by the name of Terror. Dan, before we start going down this road, could you tell us a little bit about your history in the comic book industry and also where people can find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? Absolutely. At this point... People may not even know I had a history in comic books, but that's not true. Yeah, <laughs> I, I began at Marvel as an assistant in the mid-80s while I was still going to film school and semi-quickly kind of graduated up to a more official uh, assistant editor position, worked my way up through editorial, and then segued into freelance writing primarily for Marvel, but also for DC and Dark Horse, and worked on a lot of semi-prominent titles. Daredevil is probably the best known of them, but I think I was right in the thick of a lot of what you're going to be talking about today in terms of horror comics, especially at Marvel, where I was fiercely interested in kind of getting that going, and I think pushed for certain things, and certainly pushed to be involved in those, such as the Hellraiser and Nightbreed, Clive Barker projects, and Night Stalkers, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Terror Incorporated, which we're going to talk about and wherever else I could get some spooky stuff going. And I continued on in that heavily until about 96, 97, when the big crash kind of happened, continued on through about 99, and then have not really been that actively involved since then. But folks can find out what I'm doing now if they go to storymaze.substack.com, where I have a weekly newsletter, which features new fiction and uh, some things that I think are pretty cool that are going on in storytelling. and also a bit of a retrospective of looking back at a lot of the work that I did. Awesome. Before we actually get started talking about horror comics, normally we talk about one cool thing that we have read or watched recently, but because this episode is going to be dropping right before Halloween, what is your favorite Halloween movie or comic book? Um, I mean, movies are just terrific, and there's so many when I saw that question, especially in terms of horror. And a lot of things immediately jumped to mind. The movie It Follows, the recent It movie, The Mist, Reanimator were all big you know, favorites. I like horror movies that really kind of get under your skin and horrify you, not just rack up a body count. But what I finally settled on as a favorite is probably John Carpenter's The Thing, which I just think is one of the gruesomest what 
is going to happen next? What the fuck is going to happen next? And just utter dread. I mean, there's just so many things that combine for me on that one. And I think in terms of comics, I've recently become just a, a huge fan of, and I'm probably going to slaughter the name, but Junji Ito's work, the Japanese manga mm-hmm. artist, and Uzumaki, which is one of his manga, which is about just the bizarreness of this town overwhelmed with spirals of all things. And if you have not read that, mm. it, is, it is the trippiest most unsettling thing I've read in in a great long time. So happy Halloween with that one. We actually haven't talked a lot about manga on this. We probably should do a deep dive on it at some point. But Jessica, how about you? Well, I'm going to bring it down a little bit more silly because I've always been a fan of horror and the macabre and supernatural. So I always grew up seeking creepy media as a rule. Mm -hmm. But I also love me some silliness. So the last three or so years, I've had a tradition of watching Hocus Pocus. Mm-hmm. with my friend Rob around Halloween time. And it's silly and it's not very heavy on the actual horror aspect, but it's fun and it holds up surprisingly well. Yeah, we have all the Funkos of the Sanderson sisters in our house. <laughs> it's amazing. Watching in HD, their costumes mm-hmm. are so intricate and that really doesn't come across on, you know, old VHS or watching it on television back in the day. And it's just, it's so fun how much just time and effort it looks like they put into it even though some of those details really weren't going to translate how very cool yeah Yeah, so but i also really like actual horror so i'm also in the next couple of days going to be revisiting the uh, 1963 haunting of hill house because that's (sighs) one of my favorites nice yeah it's so good (laughs) and i used to own the book that the movie was based on also and i've seen all the iterations and it's the same storyline that recent haunting of hill house is based on which is great. That plotline has been reworked so many times, but it's such a great story. I'm just not shocked in the least that it would run through so many iterations and still be accepted by the public in each of its forms. Yeah. I really liked that Netflix interpretation. It was really good. Yeah, so did I. It really it creeped everything out. Yeah. There's a YouTuber called Lady Knight the Brave, and she does a really great summary breakdown explaining a lot of the themes. And it's like almost two hours, I think, of YouTube video. but she does these really lovely retrospectives. So highly recommend you check that out if you want to just think about The Haunting of Hill House more. (laughs) Oh, I do. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to split the difference between you two. When I was growing up, I was this very timid kid and the idea of horror just creeped me out. And so I avoided it like the plague. And then when I was in high school, I had some friends show me some movies and I was like, these are great. Why was I afraid of this stuff? And so I kind of dove all the way in. (laughs) But my preferred genre is horror comedy. Mm -hmm. That is the one that you can always get me in on. And I really love this movie from the mid 90s called The Frighteners, which is a horror comedy starring Michael J. Fox. And it's directed by Peter Jackson. And it was written by Peter Jackson and his partner, Fran Walsh. And it was a few years before they... You know, went on to make a couple of movies based on this little known <laughs> franchise called Lord of the Rings. But it's really wild. It's weird and it's funny and it has some genuine jump scare moments. And there's this really great ghost story at the core of it. And the special effects at the time were considered amazing and groundbreaking. But now they're kind of you look at you're like, oh, that's high end CG high end in the mid 90s. OK, like. <laughs> But yeah, like I said, horror comedies are my absolute favorite things to watch. That's why Cabin in the Woods 
always shows up in our horror rotation as well. Same with Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Like, that's my bread and butter. With comic books, I go a little bit creepier. I think I talked about The Nice House on the Lake. That's the current series that I'm reading from DC that's genuinely creepy and really thoughtful and fun. And it's by James Tinian, who also wrote Something is Killing the Children. So those are excellent things to read if you're in the mood for a good horror comic. Great choice on The Frighteners. That's, I think, an unsung classic, and I think probably came out 10 years too early. Yeah, it's such a mashup of different weird vibes that it would probably do really, really well today. But at that point in time, it was just, what is this? You know, yeah, it's it's just because the horrifying things in it are really horrifying. I mean, Gary Mm -hmm. Busey's son, right, plays the yeah Jake, the evil ghost, and he is just trippy off the wall, you know, horrifying. So yeah, and it starts so silly, and then it kind of just continues to go creepier and creepier and by the time that they do some of the twists revealing his you know his agent in the real world Mm -hmm. it's a genuine twist like i was really surprised the first time i saw it and i was yeah so creeped out but yeah plus it's got arlie ermy as the army (laughs) ghost which is just incredible so yeah and shy mcbride is in it and jeffrey coombs oh oh is yeah right 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 yeah so yeah it's a lot of fun All right, so I suppose we should saunter into the graveyard, as it were, (laughs) and start talking about the history of horror comics. So, Dan, obviously I know that you're familiar with horror comics. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) What about you, Jess? Are you familiar with horror comics other than what we've talked about in the show? I started getting into it once you and I started, you know, talking more on the show. And so I grabbed a few things. I haven't looked through all of them yet, but I picked up some older ones. I did just recently pick up, it'll be more of a kind of a funny horror one, but they did a recent Elvira and Vincent <laughs> Price. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I picked that up, uh, issue one of that. So it's sitting on my counter ready for me to read right now. <laughs> well, and that's funny because Elvira actually has a really long storied history in comic books. Like she first appeared in kind of like the revival of House of Mystery that DC did. And then she had an 80s series that had over 100 issues that had a bunch of now major names involved. And she's continued to have series like you can go to her website and get autographed copies of her recent series from, I think, Dynamite. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Nice. Speaking of horror comedy, <laughs> Elvira is great. <laughs> yes. I recently showed Sarah the Elvira Mistress of the Dark movie. and She was, I think, really sad that I hadn't showed it to her sooner. that's another one i need to go watch this week wow don't it's great call me i'm just watching movies all week (laughs) exactly it's on a bunch of different streaming services i think right now well it turns out that horror comics have pretty much been a part of the industry since it really became a proven medium you know it wasn't long after comics became a legit medium in their own right that horror elements started showing up in superhero books which Like, I mean, it isn't too surprising. Like the 1930s was when we got the universal classic movie monsters. So it makes a lot of sense that those kinds of characters would start crossing over into comic books just to take advantage of that popularity. Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, the guys who created Superman, actually created the supernatural investigator called Dr. Occult in New Fun Comics three years before they brought Superman to life. And Dr. Occult still shows up in DC books. Like he was a major character in the books of magic with Neil Gaiman. I think he may show up in Sandman later on. I can't remember. Oh, okay. I I wouldn't be surprised Neil would find ways to mine that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, that was a lot of what the Sandman was about, was taking advantage of kind of long forgotten characters that DC had had and weaving them into his narratives. And if you're interested in that, we talk about that in our book club episodes, which we're currently going through every other episode. So the next episode after this is going to be the third episode of our book club where we cover volumes five and six. So horror comics, though, really started to pick up in the 1940s. There's multiple comic historians who say that the first ongoing horror series was Prize Comics' New Adventures of Frankenstein, which featured this updated take on the original story by Mary Shelley. It took place in America. The monster was named Frankenstein. He was immediately a terror. It's not great, but it's acknowledged as being really kind of the first ongoing horror story. And it's really not even that much of a horror story other than it featured Frankenstein's monster. But after that, a number of publishers started to put out adaptations of classic horror stories for a while. So you had Avon Publications making it official in 1946 with the comic Eerie, which is based on the first real dedicated horror comic. Yeah, this is the original cover to Eerie Comics number one. If you could paint us a word picture. Wow, this is high-end stuff as it's coming through. Well, it looks a lot like a zine or something. You know, it's got a very Mac Paint logo from 1990. You know, it's, it's, your, <laughs> it's your typical sort of like, ooh, I'm shaky kind of logo that's eerie comics. There's a Nosferatu looking character who's coming down some stairs with the pale moon behind him. It was got a knife in his hand, so you know he's up to no good. And there is a femme fatale at the base of the stairs. She may have moved off of some train tracks to get here. <laughs> and uh, she's got a, a, a cut dress, a lot of leg, and the arms and the wrists are bound. But all this for only 10 cents. So uh, I, I think there's a, there's a bargain there. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent description. Thank you. <laughs> so what's funny is that Eerie at the time was the first, you know, official horror comic, really. But it only had one issue that came out and then it sort of vanished from sight. It came back with a new series that started with a new number one in the 1950s. But this was the proverbial, the shot that started the war. You know, mm -hmm. we started seeing a ton of anthology series focusing on horror, like Adventures into the Unknown, which ran into the 1960s. And then Amazing Mysteries and Marvel Tales were repurposed series from Marvel that they basically changed the name of existing series into these. And they started doing kind of macabre, weird stories. And then we hit the 1950s. And the early part of the 1950s was when horror comics really seemed to take off and experience this insane success. We've talked about how in the post-World War II America, superhero comics were kind of declining in popularity. By the mid-1950s, only three heroes actually had their own books, and that was Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, which I didn't realize that until I was doing research. I didn't I just assumed that there were other superhero comics at the time, mm -hmm. but we started seeing comics about horror and crime and romance really starting to get larger shares of the market. And then EC comics wound up doing gangbuster business during this whole era. Like this was when we saw those iconic series, the haunt of fear, the vault of horror, the crypt of terror, which was eventually rebranded to tales from the crypt. Those all launched and they found major success. And then the bigger publishers were also getting in on this boom. During the first half of the 1950s, Atlas, which eventually became Marvel, released almost 400 issues across 18 horror titles. And then American Comics Group released almost 125 issues between five different horror titles. Ace Comics did almost 100 issues between five titles. I'm curious. I'm going to ask both of you. 
what do you think the market share of horror comics was at the time? In terms of comics or in terms of, of just like newsstand magazine distribution? I'm going to say in, in terms of distribution. I, I mean, I know they were phenomenally successful. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if it was over 60%. Okay. How about you, Just? Oh, goodness. Let's throw a number out. I'm going to say 65 just because I want to get close enough to maybe bump it up just a little bit. <laughs> okay. This is a contest the, preci- now. the precision now. It's like, yeah, the yes. 65. <laughs> okay. Well, obviously we don't have like a hard definite number, but there was a 2009 article from Reason Magazine saying that horror books made up a quarter of all comics by 1953. Okay. So, so you guys were overestimating it, but it was still pretty substantial. At the same time, we were also seeing a surge in horror films. Like the 1950s are known as the atomic age. And media reflected societal anxiety at the possibility of nuclear war and to a lesser extent, white anxiety about societal changes. So this was the decade that gave us Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing from Another World, which led to John Carpenter's The Thing eventually, um, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Hammer horror films also started to get really huge during this time. So we saw the beginning of stuff like Christopher Lee's Dracula series of films. So the 50s were like a really good decade for horror, I feel. But at the same time, violent crime in America started to pick up around this period. And people really started focusing on juvenile criminals and what was driving them. So there were a lot of theories about why this was going on. And no one's ever really come up with a definite answer. But there was the psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham, who (laughs) Dan, I'm yeah. (laughs) It's like psychiatrist. It's big air quotes around that one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he was convinced that the rise in crime was due to comics. And he spent years writing and speaking against them. He almost turned it into a cottage industry for himself. And this culminated in 1954 when he published a book called Seduction of the Innocent that blamed comic books for the rise in juvenile delinquency. And his arguments are laughable. Like, I mean, there's just no way around it. Like, you read this stuff and you can't help but roll your eyes and chuckle. But at the time, comics were a relatively new medium, you know, and people really only associated them with kids. And his arguments were saying, oh, well, Wonder Woman was a lesbian because of her strength and independence, which these days I feel like that actually has a little bit of, of credibility, but <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't really feel like that's contributing to the delinquency of the youth. <laughs> You know, and then he also said that Batman and Robin were in a homosexual relationship. And then my favorite was that Superman comics were un-American and fascist. Like, well, there's people who would argue that today, you know, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) but yeah. And then he actually, he got attention because there were televised hearings with the Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency. I mean, honestly, Every time I think about Seduction of the Innocent and how it led to the Comics Code Authority, I see the parallels with Tipper Gore's Parent Music Resource Center and how they got the parental advisory sticker on certain music albums. Or Joe Lieberman's hearings on video games in the 1990s and how that led to the Electronic Systems Rating Board system, you know, where you provide almost like movie ratings to video games. And Wortham also reminds me a lot of this guy named Jack Thompson, who was a lawyer in the 90s and aughts, and he was hell-bent on proving a link between violent video games and school shootings, and he got a lot of media attention at the time until he was finally disbarred for his antics. But 
there was this definite period where people were trying to link video games and, and violence. And even though the statistics didn't back that up. And I mean, I think about this a lot because I used to work in video games. I spent almost a decade working in the industry. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's that parallel of any time there is a new form of media that is aimed at kids. It feels like there is a moral panic. Well, I think it goes back to what you were saying before about, you know, even as, as things change in society, you know, when people in society get at risk, you know, you went to invasion of the body snatchers, right? Which is mm-hmm. classically thought to be a response to communism, you know, and right. the feelings of communist oppression and, you know, the different, you know, the other. And it's the same thing. I think every single one of these is just a proof point of if you want to become suddenly well-known like Lieberman or Wortham or anything, you know, pick the other that yep. the older generation doesn't really understand, right? Maybe now there are more adults playing video games, but it's probably still perceived as a more juvenile thing or comics or a juvenile thing or certain types of movies are a juvenile thing. You know, pick the other, pick on it, hold it up as the weaponized, you know, piece, and suddenly you're popular and you've got a great flashpoint that other people can rally around and blame as if one single thing is almost ever the cause of everything. And I always think it's interesting you know, the EC Comics, uh, you know, issues in terms of um, Wortham's witch hunt, you know, as it were. The interesting thing about those is, yeah, they were gruesome. <laughs> they are gruesome yeah. in there. But they're also, by and large, I don't know the other ones as well, but I know the EC Comics, by and large, are basically morality plays. You yeah. know, they're straight up morality plays in the sense that the bad guys get it in the end almost every time. Like they do something, they do some horrific thing. But then the corpse comes back to life and gets them, mm-hmm. you know, so there's there's always a comeuppance where the scales balance. But that was, of course, never going to be an argument when somebody could hold up a picture of, you know, a skull, you know, lurching around, you know, chewing on the entrails of something. And then that became all that was talked about. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, springboarding off of that, you know. Wortham and the subcommittee hearings and all that, they led to the, the Comics Magazine Association of America creating the Comics Code Authority. And this was basically in order to avoid government regulation. They said, no, 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 we'll police ourselves so that you don't have to worry about this stuff. Which, I mean, again, that's what we did with the DSRB. It was a response so that we could avoid government censorship. So the code had a ton of requirements that each book had to meet in order to receive the Comics Code seal of approval on the cover. And one of the things you couldn't do is have, quote, scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead or torture, <laughs> which I mean, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so the latter half of the 1950s saw a lot of these dedicated horror series, you know, basically being shut down or they mm-hmm. drastically changed. This is, you know, the major publishers really freaked out. So Marvel and DC rebranded their major horror titles. They were more focused on suspense or mystery or sci-fi or superheroes in a couple of cases. Independent publishers didn't really have to worry about the seal for different reasons. Like some of them were able to rely on their rep for publishing wholesome stuff like Dell or Gold Key. I think Gold Key at the time was doing a lot of the Disney books. So they just they were like, whatever. Right. And EC, but, but EC had to shut down their whole line and then just became mad. Right. Oh, I mean, that's that was the transition at which William, you know, Gaines yeah, that's basically right. couldn't contest what was going on, couldn't survive the spotlight. You know, he testified yeah. famously at that hearing, but had to give up 
all of that work that was phenomenally profitable for them and then had to fall back to Mad Magazine, which, of course, worked out pretty well. Yeah, exactly. By the end of the 1960s, though, publishers started to kind of gently push back a little bit, like Warren Publishing and Erie Mm -hmm. Publications, like really, they didn't give a shit. Like Warren launched a number of horror titles in the 60s, including Vampirilla, which is like kind of, I feel (laughs) it's sort of extreme (laughs) in in terms of both sex and horror, because I mean, we, we all know what Vampirilla's costume is. It hasn't changed in the 50 approximately 50 years that it's been out like it's like it's like what can you do with dental floss right when yeah right I mean, it's basically like <laughs> she doesn't wear much no i mean she never has and then by the end of the 60s marvel and dc started to like kind of steer some of their books back towards the horror genre like house of mystery was one of them where it i think with issue 175 that was when they took away took it away from john jones and dial h for hero and they were like no 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 we're gonna we're going to bring Kane back as the host and start telling horror morality plays again, which is mm-hmm. what they were always doing. And this meant that the comics code authority needed to update their code. So in 1971, they revised it to be a little bit more horror friendly. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead or torture shall not be used. Vampires, ghouls, and werewolves shall be permitted to be used when handled in the classic traditions such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works written by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, Conan Doyle, and other respected authors whose works are read in schools around the world. But at this point, Marvel and DC really jumped back into the horror genre. This was when we started getting books like The Tomb of Dracula, Ghost Rider, Werewolf by Night, and Son of Satan. And then DC had a bunch of their series, like they had, what was it? So it was originally The Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, and then it eventually got retitled to Forbidden Tales of the Dark Mansion. <laughs> like, just chef's kiss on that title. <laughs> yeah. You could take that old eerie comic and throw, you know, The Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love as the title on that, and it would work. You know, I just... know, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, Dan, I'm, I'm curious, what is your favorite horror comic or comic character from this era? I would say it was Son of Satan because it felt so trippy and forbidden. And I think comics have always, especially mainstream comics, you know, have always responded also to what's out there. Right. I don't think it's just the loosening the restrictions at that point. But in that era, what's going on? You're getting a mm-hmm. lot of, I think, the films of Race with the Devil and you're getting The Exorcist and you're getting... Rosemary's uh, the baby. omen, you know, Rosemary's baby, right? Yeah. Satanism, the devil, right? It's it's high in pop culture. So uh, true to form, you know, I think Son of Satan is in some ways like a response of Marvel, you know, to that saying, let's glom onto this. And for a kid brought up in the Catholic Church, there was a certain eeriness to this. Ooh, reading about this is like, is it really going to be Satanism? And because mm-hmm. I was very nervous that we were not allowed to even watch The Exorcist in our home ever you know <laughs> i didn't see the exorcist till i was like out of high school and i think also the character as he looks is just this really trippy look right at that point if you're not familiar with the character he's this buff dude his hair flares up into horns he just wears a cape mm-hmm. and he carries a giant trident he's got a massive pentacle i think a flaming pentacle you know etched in his chest um, he's ready to do business, you know, in some strange form there. So for me, 
he was the one I glommed onto the most. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was that whole era was just, it was Gothic horror brought back yeah. and, and Satanism and witchcraft is definitely a part of that genre. Sure. So that said, kind of like any trend horror comics, you know, they had their rise and then they started to kind of fall out of popularity by the end of the seventies or the early eighties. I feel like it was a definite end of the era when both House of Mystery and Ghost Rider ended in 1983. But, you know, there were still some individual books that were having success, but it just, it doesn't feel like Marvel did a lot with horror comics during the 80s. DC definitely had some luck with Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, and then there was stuff like Hellblazer and Sandman, which, as I mentioned, we're doing our book club episodes for, but also gave rise to Vertigo Comics, you mm -hmm. know, in, in the early 90s. Not to say that horror comics still weren't a thing during this time, but it seems like the majority of them were coming from indie publishers. Off the top of my head, one example I think of still is Dead World, which basically created a zombie apocalypse universe, and it started with Arrow Comics. It was created in the late 80s, and it's still going today. I think it's coming out from IDW now. But at the same time, it's not like Americans stopped enjoying horror stuff. Like This was the decade where we got Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Evil Dead, Hellraiser, Poltergeist, Child's Play, just to name a few of the franchises that we were introduced to. And I mentioned Hellraiser. I love Hellraiser. And Dan, I know that you have a pretty special connection to that brand. I do. I put pins in my face every night just to kind of keep my complexion. <laughs> you know. So let's transition over to the 90s and Marvel. And let's start that off with Epic Comics. Epic started in the 80s, and it was basically a label that would print creator-owned comics, and they eventually started to use the label to produce, you know, in quotes, mature comics. So Wikipedia says that this was your first editorial job at Marvel was with the Epic line. Is that correct? Well, I'll go back and maybe do just a little correction on Epic's mission, if you don't mind. You know, yeah, first, sure. Which is, it was always creator-owned. And it did start as career drum, but I don't think that ever then transitioned into more mature comics. Sometimes that just was what creator-owned comics were, right? Okay. That was just part of the mission. And so as a creator-owned imprint, it could be anything. It could be the silliest thing. It could be the most mature thing. So it was okay. always, you know, part of what it was doing. And part of the mission of doing creator-owned comics, and Archie Goodwin was the editor-in-chief, you know, of that line, was really to give creators an in to Marvel. If we gave them a nice place to play with their properties, mm -hmm. maybe they would want to go play in the mainstream Marvel. So you might get a creator who would never want to work for Marvel for whatever reason. They would have a great epic experience doing a range of things, and then they would go into this. So there was always levels of maturity, and we always looked at it as very eclectic and challenging, you know, sometimes in a good way. So I'll have to go back to Wikipedia and maybe correct them. My first job was actually, I was on the Marvel side. Yeah. And it was as the assistant to the assistant to the editor-in-chief. So I would do all of the grunt work and the running around that the assistant to the editor-in-chief didn't want to do. And she would turn to me and say, Dan, you're going to go run around the city and find this thing for Jim Shooter. Now, then I did that for about five or six months. I was still in film school and then left, which everyone was aghast. You don't leave Marvel Comics <laughs> by choice. And, <laughs> and But I had... I was still in school. I had a summer job already sort of set up and I left to go take that exciting summer job. And then I was called over the summer because there was an opening in the Epic line and they wanted to know would I be interested in taking on this assistant editor's job. 
and I said it would have to be part-time because I still had a semester to finish in school, but they were intrigued and I was figuring, oh, well, this is just kind of guaranteed job, never knowing it was going to become career-like. <laughs> and so that was then sort of my second job. Awesome. So this is going to bring us to the character of Terror. So he was introduced as a character in the Shadowline saga, which was one of those mature comics. It was like a mature superhero universe that took place in a few different series under the Epic imprint. There was Dr. Zero, there was St. George, and then there was Powerline, right? That's correct, yep. And so the Shadowline saga took its name from the idea that there were these beings called Shadows. They were basically super-powered immortal beings, and then Terror himself first appeared as Shrek. He's this weird-looking enforcer for a crime family in St. George, and he becomes kind of a recurring nemesis for the main character. He's kind of like the street-level boss, while it's hinting that there's going to be a eventual confrontation between the main character, St. George, and Dr. Zero who mm-hmm. is kind of a Superman character, but it turns out he's been manipulating humanity for, you know, millennia at this point. I think you've encapsulated it quite well. <laughs> well, thank you. So the Shadowline saga, that only lasted for about, what, a year or two? Probably a couple of years, maybe a little over. There was about, I believe, eight to nine issues of each of the, the main comics, the ones you just cited, and then mm-hmm. we segued those over to a sort of a, an omni-series we called Critical Mass, which brought together all three characters or storylines, and then try to tell this, uh, excuse the pun, epic story, (laughs) which would advance them all and sort of wrap up a lot of loose ends and, um, you know, became quite involved. And that, I think, ran about seven or eight issues. Okay. Now, a couple of years after Terror was introduced under the epic label, Marvel introduced a new Ghostwriter series in 1990 that hit that sweet spot of, like, 90s Extreme with a capital X. and (laughs) <laughs> and you know it also gave us a spooky anti-hero it was like that venn diagram where it was like spooky and extreme and rides a motorcycle and right in the middle you had ghost rider mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but from what i understand the series did really well commercially for marvel comicron which is the the comic sales tracking site notes that early issues were often in the top 10 books sold each month for 91 like there are eight issues of ghost rider books that are in the top 100 books for that year so it's not really surprising that Marvel decided to go in really hard with supernatural characters. And in 1992, we had this whole batch of horror hero books launched. We had Spirits of Vengeance, which was a spinoff from Ghost Rider, which saw Ghost Rider teaming up with Johnny Blaze, and who was the original Ghost Rider. And he didn't have a Hellfire motorcycle this time, but he had a shotgun that would fire Hellfire. <laughs> you know, and he had, he had a ponytail. It was magnificent. <laughs> And then there was also the Night Stalkers, which was a trio of supernatural investigators. There was Hannibal King and Blade and, oh, I'm blanking on the third one. Frank Drake. Yeah. And Frank Drake was a vampire, right? He was a descendant of Dracula, but also was a a vampire who had sort of been cured. Um, right. He didn't have a, a hunger for human blood, but he, he still had a, a necessity for some type of blood and possessed all the attributes, you know, of a vampire. You know, he could do all the powers, couldn't go out in the daylight, that sort of thing. So the best and worst of both worlds. Right. And then on top of that, we had the Darkhold, which it's kind of like the Marvel equivalent of the Necronomicon is the best way I can describe it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. 
And that's showed up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. since then. And they just recently brought it into the MCU. Uh, that was a thing that showed up in WandaVision towards the mm-hmm. end. Uh, so that's going to clearly reappear. And then we also got Morbius, who is the living vampire from Spider-Man. And it's great. He shows up in the series and he's got this very goth rock outfit, which is just, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> which looked a lot like how Len Kaminsky dressed in those days, in all yeah. honesty. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Len will now kill me for that, but oh well. But yeah, so these guys were all introduced via a crossover event called Rise of the Midnight Suns, which saw all of these heroes, you know, getting their own books, and then they also teamed up with Doctor Strange to fight against Lilith, the mother of demons, and mm-hmm. she was basically trying to to unleash her monstrous spawn across the world. And this was at the same time that terror wound up invading the Marvel universe. So. If you were going to give an elevator pitch for terror in the Marvel universe, how would you describe him? <laughs> I actually wrote one down. I'll read it to you. Oh, you, I'm so excited. You put that there. And it's like, oh gosh, I got to like now pitch this. A mythic manifestation of fear exists in our time as a top dollar mercenary for hire, using his supernatural ability to attach stolen body parts to himself in order to activate the inherent ability of the original owner. A locksmith's hand or a marksman's eye or a kickboxer's legs. His gruesome talent gives him the edge to take on the jobs no one else can, which he accomplishes with savagery, style, scorn, snark, and impeccable business acumen. So. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. I just, I have to tell you that 12-year-old Mike is like giddy to be able to talk to you about this. (laughs) I was pretty giddy when I was writing this stuff, so that's good. (laughs) So how did Terror wind up crossing into the Marvel Universe? Like, because he just sort of shows up in, in a couple of cameos in some Daredevil issues that you also wrote, I believe. Yeah, I don't know if he showed up before the book itself launched. It might have. I mean, the timing was all around the same time. Mm-hmm. But everybody who was involved with Terror loved that Terror and Terror Incorporated, which was the actual title, uh, loved the hell out of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Myself, the editor's... Carl Potts, who was the editor in chief, we all knew it was weird and unique. And at one point, when I, you know, said to Carl uh, afterwards, said, "Well, I'm going to just take this whole concept and go somewhere else with it." He said, "You can't. You made up something that, you know, can't really be replicated without people knowing exactly what you're doing. It's not just another guy with claws or a big mm-hmm. muscle guy. How many people grab other people's body parts?" So I said, "You know, fie on me." But we all loved it. So when the shadow line stuff kind of went away. Uh, and he was sort of kicking out there still, uh, Carl came to me one day and, and said, listen, we love this character. We're thinking of doing something with horror in Marvel. This was before the rise of the Midnight Sun. So okay. it kind of became a little bit ahead of that. I think this eventually would become exactly the rise of the Midnight Suns. But we want to bring together a lot of these unused horror characters, like Werewolf by Night, Man-Thing, or whatever. But we want a central kind of character who navigates them or maybe introduces Mm. them. Wasn't quite clear what. And they thought Terror, or Shrek as he still was at that point, could be that character. He could almost be a Crypt Keeper maybe. It wasn't quite fully baked. And so we started to bounce this around a little bit. And then I got a call from Carl and said, yeah, that's off. Mm. We're going to do something else with these horror characters, which again would eventually become probably the Midnight Sun stuff. But he said, but we still want to do something with it. You know, so my disappointment went to, oh, what do you mean? How could we do anything? He said, what if you just bring him into the Marvel Universe? We won't say anything about what he did before and just use him as a character and start over with him operating as this 
high-end mercenary. You know, what's he going to do? What is Terror Incorporated? And how does he do business within the Marvel world? And so I said, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, any quicker. And just jumped into it. And I didn't really worry about the the transition. You know, I wasn't thinking too much about, okay, how does he get from Shadowline World to Earth 616 or whatever? Marcus McLaurin, who was the editor, God bless him, for years would resist any discussion. Or No, no, it's not the same character. Marcus, it's the same character. I'm using the same lines. I'm having him reference the same fact that he's had different versions of the word terror is his name. At one point, he makes a joke about the St. George complex. I, I mean, it's the same character. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Marcus was a very good soldier to the Marvel hierarchy. So we just really brought him over and we just went all in on him in terms of, okay, what could a character like this play in, in the Marvel world? And he played really well in certain instances, but he certainly was very different than probably anything else that was going on at the time. Yeah, I mean, there certainly wasn't a character like him before. So all the wikis, like Wikipedia, all the Marvel fan sites, they all list Daredevil 305 as Terror's first official appearance in... Could be. I yeah. mean... <laughs> but I want to talk about that for a second, because that is, I think, the greatest villain that I've ever seen in a Marvel comic, which was the Surgeon General, who is this woman <laughs> who is commanding an army of, like... I mean, basically, it's it's like a full-scale operation of that urban myth of... The, yes. the dude goes home with an attractive woman that he meets at the club, and then he wakes up in a bathtub full of ice, and he's missing organs. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, that was certainly urban myth territory, <laughs> and I was a big student of urban myths, and that was the sort of thing that I think would show up in the headlines every three to six months, uh, it, but always one of those probably friend-of-a-friend stories that, oh, yeah. like a razor blade in an apple or something like that that never actually sort of tracks back. Well, I mean, the thing now is it's all edibles and candy and they're the, like all the news outlets are showing officially branded edibles, which what daddy Warbucks mother knows my stand on this. Like, no, no, that nobody is buying expensive edibles and then putting them in your child's candy. Right. Like, no, no, Let's no, it's it. the, it's the easier version of putting, <laughs> The LSD tab or wasting your, your pins on children and Snickers bars. Um, (laughs) But, but I think that's, that storyline is interesting, Mike, because it's the, it's one of the few times I had a plot line utterly just completely rejected by an editor, because I think I was doing so much horror stuff at the time, because I was also concurrently doing the Hellraiser work, the Nightbreed work. Mm -hmm. It would have been the beginning of the Night Stalkers work, because I was heavily involved with the whole Midnight Suns you know, work. I, I, I went so far on the first plot and it was so grisly and so gruesome that Ralph Macchio, who's the editor, called me up and said, yeah, this title is Daredevil. It's not Hellraiser. <laughs> so I had to kind of back off and realize, uh, yeah, I put a little too much emphasis on the grisliness there. So that's amazing. Yeah. She was an interesting exploration of a character type. I'm really sad that she hasn't showed back up, especially because it feels like it'd be kind of relevant these days with, you know, how broken the medical system is here in America. Yeah, it's it's funny. And I never played with her again, which is, I think, one of my many Achilles heels, you know, as I would sometimes introduce characters and then I would just not go back to them for some reason. I was always trying to kind of go forward on something new. Yeah. Is there anything about Tara's character that you related to at the time or now even? Um, (laughs) 
probably being very imperious, very complicated, having a thing for long coats. Uh, I think all of those probably, uh, you know, work then and now. I've kind of become convinced, weirdly enough, over time that Terror was a character who, and, and I, you know, I co-created him with Margaret Clark and, and, uh, and Klaus Janssen, but I, I probably did the most work with him over the years, you know, so I feel maybe a little bit more ownership, but I've sort of become convinced that he was just his own thing and he just existed out there in the ether. And all I was ultimately was a conduit like <laughs> that. I was, I was just channeling this thing into our existence because he came so fully formed. Mm-hmm. And whenever I would write him, he would just kind of take over the page and take over the instance that's always how I've viewed him, which is different than many of the other things that I've written. He's certainly a larger than life personality in, in every sense of that expression. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for the terrible pun. Okay, so we've actually talked a bit about terror, but I feel like we need to have Jessica provide us with an overall summary of his brief series. So the, the series is based on the titular character, of course, Terror, who is unable to die and has the ability to replace body parts and gains the skill and memory of that limb. So he might use the eye of a sharpshooter to improve his aim or the arm of an artist for a correct rendering. And because of the inability for his body to die, the dude looks gnarly. His face is a sick green color. He has spike whiskers coming out of the sides of his face. And he mostly lacks lips. Sometimes he has lips, but he mostly lacks lips. So he always has this grim smile to his face. And he also has a metal arm, which is awesome. I love that. And he interchanges all of the rest of his body parts constantly. So in one scene, he'll have a female arm. And in another one, he'll sport an otherworldly tentacle. He states that his business is fear, but he is basically a paid mercenary, very much a dirty deeds, although not dirt cheap. Terror charges quite a hefty sum for his services, (laughs) but he is willing to do almost anything to get the job done. His first job is ending someone who is likewise immortal, air quotes, which involves finding and activating a half demon in order to open a portal and then trick a demon daddy to hand over the contract of immortality, you know, casual. (laughs) he also has run-ins with wolverine doctor strange punisher silver sable and luke cage it's action-packed and you legitimately have no idea what new body part he's gonna lose or gain in the moment or what memory is gonna pop up for him from the donor and it keeps the reader guessing because terror has no limitations yeah, I was I was so looking forward to hearing what your recap was going to be. I love that. So I just want to say that. <laughs> Thank you. I had a lot of fun reading this. Not only was the plot and just the the narrative itself just rolling, the art was fantastic. I mean, the things you can do with a character like that, there truly aren't any limits. And so it was really interesting to see how everything fell together and and what he was doing each moment to kind of get out of whatever wacky situation he was in at the time (laughs) and his and his quips i just the quips were just they they give me life they're so good (laughs) like there was one moment where he was sitting there and playing with the lament configuration right issue which i 
I never noticed that before until I was rereading this time. And I was like, oh, that's great. And then he also made a St. George reference towards the end of the series where he was talking about, oh, I knew another guy who had a St. George complex. Right, like, right, okay, right. Great. Like, I, I love those little Easter eggs. Speaking of Easter eggs, there are a lot of Clive Barker Easter eggs throughout that whole series. Well, that's it. It was so parallel at the time. Yeah. yeah. So around that time was when you were editing and then writing for the Hellraiser series and the Nightbreed series, right? Yes. Okay. Certainly writing for them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I did some consulting editing on the Hellraiser and other Barker books after I left staff, but primarily writing at that point. Okay. So I have Hellraiser number one, and I think you're listed as an editor on it. I was. I started yeah. the whole Hellraiser anthology with other folks, you know, but I was oh, the, so the main cool. driver. And I think that was one of the early instigators of kind of the rebirth of horror at that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to something you said earlier, you know, for many years, I was always pressing Archie Goodwin, who worked at Warren and worked on Erie and worked on all those titles. You know, why can't we do a new horror anthology? And he was quite sage-like in saying, yeah, it'd be great to do it, but it's not going to sell. There's mm -hmm. no hook, right? There's no connection, you know, just horror for horror's sake. And it was when Clive Barker came into our offices and said, I want to do something with Archie Goodwin. And then the two of them said, Hellraiser can be the hook, right? right? Hellraiser can be the way in to sort of create an anthology series, have an identifiable icon. And then we developed out from there with Clive, with a couple of other folks, Eric Solskaber, Phil Nutman, myself, Archie Goodwin, like what would be the world and then the Bible mm -hmm. that would actually give you enough breath and width to play with these characters that wouldn't just always be puzzle box, pinhead, puzzle box, pinhead, you know? And so we develop a fairly large set of rules and mythologies that allowed for that. That's so cool. I mean, there really wasn't anything at all like Hellraiser when it came out. Like, no. <laughs> and, and there's still not a lot like it, but I really yeah, I was going to say, mythology. wait, what else? <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've read other books since then where there's that blending of sexuality and horror and morality because at the at the core of it, Hellraiser often feels like a, a larger morality play. I, I don't know. You know, I'm going to disagree with you on that. Okay. One. I mean, I think sometimes we let it slip into morality and we played that out. Mm -hmm. But I, I think Hellraiser is sort of find what you want out of it, right? Yeah. So you go back to the first film and it's, you know, what's your pleasure, sir? You know, yeah. when the guy hands out the book and the Cenobites, you know, are angels to some demons to others. So I think the book was at its best mm -hmm. and, the, and the movies are at their best when it's not so much about the comeuppance as it is about find your place in here. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can be that sort of weird exploration of many different things. That's cool. So going back to terror, mm -hmm. because we've talked about like how much we enjoyed the character and everything. I want to take a moment to talk about each of our favorite terror moment okay so dan why don't you start <laughs> what was your favorite moment for terror to write or going back to read it's a great question one of the toughest because again i i had such delight in the character and felt such a a connection you know in sort of channeling him in a way i could probably find you five ten moments per issue mm -hmm. but uh, um I, I actually think it was the, the <laughs> It's in the first issue, and it was probably the first line that sort of came to me, and then I wrote backwards from it, which was this got your nose bit. And, you know, it's the old gag of, like, when a parent's playing with a child and, you know, grabs at the nose and uses the thumb to represent the nose and says, got your nose. And there's a moment in that issue where I think he's just plummeted out of a skyscraper. He's 
you know, fallen mm-hmm. down into a police car. He's basically shattered. And this cop or security guard is, is kind of coming over to him. And, and he just reaches out and I don't think grabs the guy's nose, you know, rips his arm off or something or legs to start to replace himself and, and just says, got your nose. But it's, <laughs> but, but it's all a build from this inner monologue that he's been doing. Yeah. And so he's not responding to anything. He's not doing a quip to anything. He's just basically telling us a story and ending it with this, you know, delivery that basically says the guy has a complete condescending attitude and just signals that we're in his space. Like he doesn't need to kind of like do an Arnold response to something. It's just, he's in his own like little world of moments. I always just kind of go back to that got your nose moment, which is just creepy and crazy and strange. As soon as you mentioned that, I was thinking of the panel that that was from. It was such a great moment. I think it was the mob enforcers that had shot him up and he had jumped out of the skyscraper for, and then they came down to finish him off and he wound up just ripping him apart right? so that he could rebuild himself. All right, Jessica, how about you? I really enjoyed the part where Terror fights with sharks in order to free <laughs> Silver, Sable, and Luke Cage. It was so cool. There was just absolutely no fear as he went at the first shark head on. And mm-hmm. and then there were like five huge bloodthirsty sharks in the small tank and Terror's just like, what an inconvenience. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. and, like followed by a quippy remark, like in his head, of course. And I feel like he's such a, a solitary character that mm. it makes sense that he would have such an active internal monologue. I find myself doing that. Like, you know, I mean, I have a dog, so he usually gets the brunt of it. But, you know, it's it is that you start to form like sort of a, an internal conversation if you don't have that outside interaction. And I right. think a lot of us can probably relate to that through this pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the one-liner thoughts, like, again, they make those scenes, in my opinion, and it gave pause for levity. We don't have to be serious about this because it really isn't life or death for terror. We know that. And he just reminds us that constantly by just, he's always so damn nonchalant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does have a very, I'm not going to say suave, but it's, uh, you know, that sort of very, I've got this, you know, sort of attitude to it. Yeah, I would say that he's suave when he wants to be. I mean, like the last <laughs> issue, he's got his whiskers tied back in kind of a ponytail. Oh, yeah. And oh, like, yeah. <laughs> Richard Pace did a great job with that. Yeah, Where he's dancing with his assistant in the restaurant. And it's that final scene where he's got that really elegant tuxedo. Like, I'm, Yeah, it's very beautiful. I would say that he can be suave when he wants to be. <laughs> so I got to say, like my favorite one, it was a visual gag that you guys did. And it's in issue six when he's fighting with the Punisher and he's got this mm-hmm. long gun sniper rifle. And he shoots the Punisher point blank. And Terror's like, at this point, he's lost his legs for like the <laughs> sixth time. Like he, he seems to lose his legs like once an issue where he's just a torso waddling around on his hands. And so he shoots him and the force skids him back. <laughs> and I legit could not stop laughing for a good minute. Like I was just cackling when I read that. So I think all of us agree that it's those moments of weird levity that really made the series feel like something special. I'm not quite sure we're going to see that moment reenacted at the the Disney Pavilion, you know, anytime (laughs) soon. But that would be pretty awesome if they ever went that route. Well, yeah. So, I mean, like, let's talk about that for a minute, because one of the main ways that I consume Marvel Comics these days is through Marvel Unlimited. Mm. and. Terror has a pretty limited presence there. There's a few issues of various Deadpool series. There's the Marvel team up that I think Robert Kirkman did 
where terror shows up and he has some pretty cool moments in there. And then there's a couple of random issues of the 1990s Luke Cage series cage, Mm -hmm. but like the core series, the Marvel max stuff, his appearance in books like daredevil and Wolverine, they just don't seem to be available for consumption via the app. Like I had to go through my personal collection to find all this stuff. And like, are the rights just more complicated because it was published under the Epic imprint and that was creator own stuff. Like, do you know? No, I mean, it wouldn't be. It's choice, right? Okay. It's probably perceived as a, uh, if people within the editorial group even know about him, right? I was, mm-hmm. I was reading something recently where some of the current editorial staff had to be schooled on who Jack Kirby was. So oh. I'm not sure how much exposure or, you know, interest there would be, you know, to that. I mean, I don't yeah. know why everything would be on Marvel Unlimited. It doesn't seem like it requires anything except scanning the stuff and, and putting it up there. But mm-hmm. there wouldn't be any rights issues. Uh, Marvel owned the Shadow Line. Mm-hmm. Marvel owns the Terror Incorporated title. It would have been there. So I'm not really sure why it, it wouldn't be. And maybe at some point it will. But that's just an odd omission. I mean, for years, which I always felt like, well, what did I do wrong? I mean, you could find very little of the Daredevil work I did, mm-hmm. which was probably very well known and very well received. In, in reprints, it would be like there'd be reprints of almost every other storyline, and then there'd be a gap hmm. around some of those things. And now they've started to reappear as they've done these omnibus editions. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, going back to the awareness of the character, anytime I talk about terror to people, it's probably a three out of four chance that they won't have heard of him before. <laughs> I don't know if you're a part of the, uh, the comic book historians group on Facebook. I'm not, no. So there's a lot of people who are really passionate about comic book history and they talk about various things. And so when I was doing research for this episode, originally I was asking about kind of the revamp of supernatural heroes. And I said, you know, this was around the same time as terror and several people sat there and said, we haven't heard of terror before. And I was like, he's great. He's amazing. You have to look him up. But yeah, it seems like, you know, to echo what you stated, it seems like there's just a a lack of awareness about the character, which I feel is a genuine shame. And that's part of the reason that I wanted to talk about him in this episode. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I love the spotlight. And I I think anytime I've talked to somebody about it, who knew it, I've never heard somebody who read the book said, yeah, that sucked. Yeah. Right. I've heard that about other things, <laughs> but not about this one. Invariably, if they read it, they loved it mm-hmm. and they were twisted and kind of got into it. But it did have a limited run, right? It was only 13 issues. It didn't get the spotlight. It was sort of promised. It kind of, it came out with a, a grouping of other mercenary titles at the time. There was a new Punisher title. There was a Silver Sable. Mm-hmm. There was a few other titles in this grouping. Everyone was promised a certain amount of additional PR, which they got when it got to, to Terror. It didn't get that. It, it, like, they pulled the boost at the last minute. That might not have made a, a difference. And I also think maybe it was a little bit ahead of its time in certain attitudes crossing the line between horror and humor and overtness of certain things, at least for Marvel. Like, where Mm -hmm. do you fit this? I think the readers are fine. Readers are great about picking up on stuff and embracing things. For Marvel, it was kind of probably, and I'm not dissing them. I never got like any negative, you know, we're going to launch this title, but we're going to dismiss it. But I just also think, unless it's somebody like me driving it, or the editor driving it, or Carl Potts, who was the editor-in-chief of that division at that point, you know, unless they're pushing it, there's plenty of other characters, right, for Mm -hmm. things to get behind. But I think, again, anytime it kind of comes up, it is definitely the one that I hear about 
probably the most and the most passionately. So that's cool in its own way. Yeah, I I think I remember reading an interview that you did where you were talking about how there was originally going to be like a gimmick cover or a trading card yeah. or something like that. So what what was the uh, what was the gimmick going to be for Terra Number One? You know, what was the gimmick going to be? I don't know actually. If I knew, I can't remember anymore. But it was going to be totally gimmicky, as all those titles and and covers were at the time. So I hope not scratch and sniff like a rotting <laughs> body odor. Although that would have been kind of in character and, and cool. Well, I mean, um, like, this was the era of the gimmick cover. Like that was oh, when, absolutely. That was when we had Blood Strike come out, and it was like the thermographic printing, so you could rub the blood and it would disappear. Force Works is my favorite one. You literally unfold the cover and it's like a pop-up book. Somebody actually keyed me in. There actually was like a, a terror trading card. Yeah. Point, like after the fact, which oh. I was like shocked. I have that. That's from Marvel Universe Series 4. Yeah. Did a pretty good job with it, actually. And then even as we got to the end of the run, you know, we, and you can sort of see as we were trying to shift certain aspects of the book, you know, more into the mainstream Marvel, mm-hmm. because they said, well, we'll give you another seven issues or something, you know, to kind of uh, get the numbers up. Right. And, and they pulled the plug, you know, even before that. So uh, that's why the end kind of comes a bit abruptly. And we get that final coda scene, you know, that Richard Pace did such a nice job with. Yeah. I mean, it felt like it wrapped it up, you know, and they gave you that opportunity, which I was really kind of grateful for, to be honest. Yeah. And subsequently, I don't know what's going on. I know there was the David Laugham, you know, a series. He did a couple mm-hmm. of those, which... I glanced at, I know I kind of got in the way of it a little bit to not in the way, but I just said, remember to give us little created by credits and that, Mm -hmm. but I didn't read those. And then I know he was in the league of losers at one point, which just didn't sound right to me. And, uh, (laughs) okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to say this because it's basically a bunch of kind of like the B to C listers for the most part. Right. And so they're called the league of losers. I think it's a really good story, and I actually really like what they do with Terror. He gets, she's now Spider Woman, I think. It's Anya Corazon. Uh-huh. It was her original incarnation of Aranya, and she's got that spider armor that, like, comes out of her arm. Oh, okay. So, so she dies early on, and he gets her arm. And then oh, that's cool. what happens is he makes a point of using the armor that she has. And so he becomes this weird amalgamation of Terror and Aranya's armored form which is great was that the kirkman series is that the one that was the yeah that was part of marvel team of okay and it was written by robert kirkman well then i will i will look it up yeah and that one's on marvel unlimited and it's genuinely a really fun story as i remembered it's been a couple of years since i read it but yeah very cool so we've talked about this a little bit but something that we like to focus on a bit is you know lgbtq plus themes Mm -hmm. in comics because we both identify as members of the queer community And something that's been happening over the past, I don't know, five years or so is that the queer community has really been actively making a push to reclaim the horror genre as it's ours. Okay. And this goes back to, you know, the original Gothic horror novels were a lot of times written by people who were queer before terms like homosexual were even really part of the common parlance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Oscar Wilde, things like that. And it was a way that they could weed these homoerotic themes into fiction without being identified as the other. And then right. also, like in horror movies, a lot of times it's queer people who wind up being the killers. Mm. There's this great meme that came out a couple of years ago, which I've included in our show notes of, you know, society saying, well, LGBT plus people are monsters. And then us saying, 
well, we're just going to gather up all the cryptids and monsters in our arms and say, these are ours now. And they're like, yes. they're like, wait, no, that's not. And it's no, no, it's too late. The Babadook is gay and I'm dating Mothman. And <laughs> <laughs> is there a t-shirt that says that? Because that would be pretty freaking awesome. I yeah. mean, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so you have a fairly unique perspective because you know, we've talked about how you worked on a couple of, of queer horror franchises. Like, I feel like Hellraiser is, is a very queer horror franchise in its own way because there's a lot of sexuality of various types. In there. Mm -hmm. And Nightbreed, the argument has been made that it's a subversively queer movie because it's all about a persecuted minority that gathers together to support itself from the larger, you know, humanity society. Mm -hmm. And you were working on these comics right around the time when the Comics Code Authority was updated to allow the acknowledgement of homosexuality. And I mean, what was that like? Did that even come into play with what you guys were writing at the time? Because you didn't have to worry about the Comics Code. Yeah, for us, it, it wasn't a blip. You know, it wasn't a blip on the radar. By yeah. being over in Epic Land, we skirted that because our books were more mature, you know, in that way. And I, in all honesty, at that point, the Marvel books were still submitted to the Comics Code, but it had become largely toothless, you know, from the late 70s, you know, early 80s onward, you know, especially when I think it was DC really broke precedents. I think Marvel broke precedents with some Spider-Man issues that were related to to drugs. And then mm -hmm. DC did something of the same with the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow books. And they said, we <laughs> want to talk about these mature themes and we're not going to, you know, be buckled under by this. So even though when I uh, worked on the Marvel side and we'd submit things to the comics code, and if they came back with something, certainly that would be responded to. Mm -hmm. But in relationship to the Nightbreed and, and Hellraiser work, we never had to worry about that. But I think it's a really interesting point you make and wasn't something I consciously thought of in that exact way. I mean, Clive is gay and yeah. that's not a, a secret. And, and I hope not. I didn't out him, right? No. Um, I, mean, and, like, and, and, <laughs> I think he was out even back then. No, he was. He was. No, of course he was. And he yeah. was very much who he is and just an amazing character and amazingly charismatic and amazingly seductive in you know in the work that he does and i think we touched on this a little bit before you know certainly in terms of hellraiser at least my view was always yeah there's horrific things in there and of you want to interpret that as your pleasure well that's a whole different like mindset or worldview but it's very open mm -hmm. right find yourself in this and if folks have embraced, you know, the Nightbreed, you know, in that way, I think that's terrific. I don't think it, it was never in all my many, many, many discussions and creations, you know, around that overtly stated, well, well, this is a metaphor, you know, for the queer community or something. Mm -hmm. I think anytime anything's actually discussed that way, it's horrible. <laughs> you know, when it's, when it's literally positioned as this is a metaphor for X. And therefore, there's an agenda behind it to do it that way. It becomes very like you're preaching about something in a way. But it was always inherently there. Who were the heroes of Nightbreed? The monsters of the heroes, right? Their persecution, their outsider status, they are the normals to themselves, right? Which is, was the wonderful thing about it. And it was Archie Goodwin, you know, who actually sort of gave us the keys to the comics kingdom on that mm -hmm. because he said, they're the X-Men of monsters, right? Which is you know, the X-Men were famously the outsiders as mutants, you know, within the mainstream comics. So it was like his interpretation of like saying, this is how we make this transition into an ongoing, you know, series of stories. 
So, you know, I would just say that it's all there in how you want to look at the sense that there are societal outsiders who are, of course, completely normal and worthwhile and vibrant and worth exploring and becoming part of. How many people within the Nightbreed stories, at least that, you know, I was doing, you know, want to become a Nightbreed? Mm-hmm. right? Because they recognize something about themselves or they recognize they're lacking, or maybe they're doing it for the wrong reasons, but it's actually in so many ways, a more appealing society because it has this range and in individuality. Awesome. Well, so this kind of leads into the fact that, you know, we've been rereading terror ahead mm-hmm. of this interview, but we're obviously approaching it with a 2021 perspective. And right. something that stuck out to me is that terror comes across a bit as somewhat gender fluid but it's like in a utilitarian way right like given how he isn't picky about the gender of the parts that he attaches to his body (laughs) i mean like so you know the metal arm that that jessica mentioned earlier so it wasn't really explained in the core series until i think that final issue when we get that that two-page splash that was the woman that he fell in love with and he always wanted to keep a part of her with him right right she's hermetically sealed inside that metal hand right Right. so yeah but i mean you know, there was the bit where at one point in the first issue where he's using the hand of an artist and his assistant's like, oh, I love what you've done with your nails. And he gets this quizzical look. And he's like, well, I was more concerned with, you know, its artistic abilities rather than <laughs> its cuticle care. But I mean, do you think the argument can be made these days that he is somewhat genderqueer? I love this point that you made. And, and it's something, you know, I wish I had explored more. In thinking about the character then, I think it's a fantastic consideration. I think he's more gender practical, mm. right? In, in the sense of, <laughs> as you said, sort of utilitarian. Yeah. It's just, what do I need at any given moment to get my business done? Mm-hmm. But I think, and you brought this point up, Jess, when you sort of did the recap, every part didn't just come with the physical abilities, right? It wasn't just the locksmith's you know, hand or the artist's hand or the kickboxer's leg or whatever. Whatever he picked up also came with the emotional components, right? So if that hand that was doing a a sketch of somebody because he needed to know what the map of a building looked like, he was also picking up on the fact that that hand had touched that person's child that morning and run its fingers through the hair. So he was getting this emotional charge and, and memory components that were kind of mixed in there, which he had to both hold at bay because he couldn't get swept away in it. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to do his business. But I think based upon what you're asking now, would also just make a much more completely robust, informed character, right? He's experienced so much from so many genders Mm -hmm. and so many gender interpretations and personal persona interpretations over thousands of years, you know, potentially, you know, in this way. He's got to be incredibly balanced and also sort of, why are you guys talking about this? You know, if you ever got into a conversation about it, you know, in that way, which I just love. I just love that you brought that up. And it also made me think a little bit for the first time really about, you know, the whole sort of Theseus ship, you know, what is left of him, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, what the very little right so who is terror you know in that own way when he's replaced probably pretty much everything over time i'd never even thought about that that's a great point (laughs) yeah yeah so 
terrors popped up in Marvel books since his solo series, but you didn't write them. So the shame, shame, were, a great shame. I know. <laughs> no, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to no heartily agree. So terror, Marvel Max, Apocalypse Soon, Deadpool Volume 6, Deadpool and the Mercs for money, and Marvel Team Up. If you were going to write a new terror story and you could team him up with anyone, what would you do? Another great question. And first, I want to ask you guys a question. Hmm. Why would it have to be a team up? Why wouldn't it be like a solo series? I have an idea of the team up, but I just wanted to know what led that question to why would it have to be thinking about a team up story? Oh, I feel like it certainly wouldn't have to be. Yeah. But it would be interesting to see who you think would be a good pair up these days as well. Right. Because absolutely, I would love to see that character in his own right, you know, resurface because he is interesting. He's fun. And I think there are just so many things that you could do with that character, especially nowadays. Very cool. Yeah. I'm on the same page where I would love to see just terror in any incarnation. But like, honestly, I love the idea of just teaming him up with someone established because he's such a great comic foil in his own way. Like he's, he, he's, yeah, he brings out something of the others. He's very disruptive in his own way to, mm -hmm. you know, crib a buzzword from everywhere these days. <laughs> from business. Yeah. No, actually, it was a great question. And I'm going to go pitch this to Tom Brevoort after this. But uh, it got me flashing back, actually, to what I'd mentioned before when Carl called me and said, hey, we want him to be the crib keeper or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know, to myself, you know, if you were to bring it back, what if you teamed him up? and this is not commercial in any way, shape, or form, but it's sort of, you know, what if you teamed him up with some other prominent Marvel horror characters again? Not mm -hmm. the ones that already have their range, right? Blade and Ghost Rider, you know, who are, who are tripping it up and stuff. But what if you pulled back that man thing, or the living mummy, mm -hmm. or the werewolf by night, Morbius, you know, maybe, even though Morbius is going to get some more prominence, certainly in Spider-Man or something like that, Baron Blood, you, you know, or whatever. And what if he basically had to establish a new terror incorporated? You know, he's basically got a kind of an Ocean's Eleven mm. sort of mission he has to do in some form or another and had to bring them together. But what would be interesting, I think, too, would be him imparting on all of these disenfranchised characters. You need to be operating as a business. Stop just shambling through the swamps, you know, and stop like going to dog grooming places or, you know, or bandage places because you're the living mummy or whatever. Like find an angle, a disruptive angle with each of these as he brings them together for his own, obviously self-serving purposes, you know, a way to sort of impart on them. You're not treating yourself right. You're not treating your assets the right way, right? Here's how to invest your assets and you know, get a return on investment, you know, as it were, and play that out. I think that could be actually a hell of a lot of fun to have a sort of a, a range like that. Yeah. Turn your, uh, turn your, not a side hustle, turn your shamble hustle into a, <laughs> exactly. or, or side your shamble. side, sh your side shamble. Yeah. I yeah. think it's like, you know, <laughs> Oh man. Hashtag boss monster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, to really pull it back into nowadays. Oh God, we're oh man, we're totally using that in the in, in the hashtags. Yeah, we're using to promote this. Yeah, 
Hashtag boss monster. Absolutely. Exactly. That would be the, that could be the title. That's the subtitle. Terror Inc. Boss Monster. And oh it's, uh, if I, if I see that come up, I'm going to know. I don't, I don't need any credit, but I'm going to know. You will get credit. I was going to say, just, just give us a thanks. That's all we care about. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> well, was there any one person in the industry that you aspired to work with? And were you able to make that a reality? That was interesting consideration too, uh, as you guys put it out there. I had no expectations or aspirations. I mean, getting into the business was somewhat of a surprise and and a gift in a lot of ways. So I sort of charged forward and, and I was really lucky. I mean, I worked with a lot of A-list people, right? I worked with Bill Sienkiewicz and Klaus Janssen and, and uh, Ron Garney and Lee Weeks and Dwayne McDuffie. And I was a co-writer on some things and you know, Brett Blevins, Jorge Zafino, Clive, you know, Barker on these things. So, but when I thought about specifically people who I might have liked to work with and was just too insecure to actually ask them, <laughs> I, I always like Bob Layton's work a lot. Um, mm. And J.R. Jr., who we crossed over in a lot of conversations and interviews, especially in the Daredevil world, it would have been interesting to sort of reach out to him. Bernie Wrightson, who work I admired beyond beyond and when I finally met him it was like you're Bernie Wrightson it's impossible that I'm actually talking to you that would have been amazing you know to work with and and an artist I've always really admired is June Brigman who's very famous for Power Pack and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, especially and you know I think that would have been a, a fun pairing I don't know exactly what type of project I wouldn't put June on Terror Incorporated necessarily but you know, these are folks who would have been a lot of fun to work with. There was a well-known artist, Paul Ryan, who was a very workman-like presence on a lot of titles, a phenomenal storyteller. And we were supposed to do some Daredevil miniseries, and those got shortcut when I got taken off Daredevil. But he would have been fun to work with. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. Mm. Now I'm thinking about terror and power pack crossing over. Well, you know, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have beat up on the kids, you know, I well, would have made just up some excuse probably, you know, world's worst babysitter. <laughs> like <laughs> exactly. Takes them on assassination missions. Like, right, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> you know. Well, slightly related. Did you hear the recent news that 2K is doing a rise of the midnight suns video game? Yeah, yeah, I saw that, and I'm and I'm a big admirer of the XCOM, you know, games. So I think that's encouraging that it will be an exciting, well done game. It seems like they're using that approach and that kind of yeah. engine. Yep. Uh, I'm a little, eh, not sure about what they're doing with the whole name change. You know, it goes from Sons with O N S to U N S to the cast that they've sort of put in there. You know, I was corresponding with some of the other folks who, with me, created Lilith and mm-hmm. created the rise of the Midnight Suns and saying, is this a legitimate change or is this one of these things where they skew things just enough where they don't have to pay us <laughs> for, for certain things? Or even if they twist it, yeah. do we still get one of those nice little thank yous in the game credits at least? So I'm intrigued you know, buy it, but I'm also not sure where they're going to go. I, I read an interview with the games director and he was saying uh, something about Lilith and then the Lilin who are mm-hmm. her, her children, you know, that she was trying to spread across the earth. And he's saying, uh, yeah, something like Lilith and her, you know, her spawn, you know, would be really integral to 
a game like this? And it was like, yeah, that was the whole point of the story. The story. <laughs> so maybe it was a misquote. I understand he's actually a fan of the stories. So I'll definitely be keeping my eye out for it. It's interesting. Yeah, it definitely is. It's a different view on the Marvel characters, probably for a lot of people who aren't exposed to it. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's all those, I don't know if they're rumors or just fan bait discussion, probably more the latter, you know, where people are always talking about, well, that's the next shift for, you know, the MCU. Yeah. They're going to start introducing more of the the horror stuff, you know, and you're seeing a little bit of that with Agatha, mm-hmm. you know, Harkness and and creepy things here and Sam Raimi's directing Doctor Strange too, yeah. You know, multiverse, you know, of madness and and uh does that mean we're gonna start getting ghost riders and certainly we're getting blade and all that kind of stuff. So Well yeah, because we had Robbie Reyes show up in Agents of Shield. Okay. I didn't see that. Okay. It's it's actually really And is he Robbie Reyes as yeah. as Ghost Rider? Yeah. Oh okay. Yeah, so that's the whole thing is they started splitting up the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. seasons into kind of like half season arcs that would then Mm. merge together at the end. And so I think it's season four and they have Robbie Reyes as Ghost Rider and there's the Darkhold. And Mm. then later on, there's an AI android who shows up and is doing her world ending nonsense. Mm -hmm. And then and they bring Robbie Reyes back and. I think they give the Ghost Rider essence to Agent Coulson at one point, which was kind of cool. But the thing with Robbie Reyes is he reveals that he was in a car wreck and then Ghost Rider on a motorcycle shows up and gives him his own Ghost Rider. Um, and so it's hinting at that larger Ghost Rider connection yeah ghost rider patrol <laughs> well yeah because like there there wound up being like a whole slew of ghost riders in marvel after a while there was johnny blaze and dan ketch and then there was robbie reyes and then they've had a couple of others and then i think jason aaron did a whole thing where it showed ghost riders through history yeah comic books are always weird and they get convoluted and i love them yeah i think the, the convolution is always the, the thing i mean sometimes i'll go to wikipedia to catch up on something and i'll stop reading after the third paragraph because oh I yeah can't follow it anymore and it's just like what 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 <laughs> and i'm pretty good at following stuff but that's it so. gets uh it gets complicated real quick right right like i was reading about venom you know the, the latest movie and and then there was this whole detour around and then venom became an eternal universe spanning spirit as well it's like whoa 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 he was just fine when he was like a twisty little you know yeah. spirally symbiote like mm-hmm. why does he need to become a <laughs> you know a galactus like figure or something like that so i just finished reading the king and black series which like i don't know if you've read it but donny case has done some really interesting stuff with both thor and venom and okay you know the cool thing is so that they let kate's build it up for a while so there was absolute carnage and then they had null who was like the god that was imprisoned by the planet of the symbiotes and then they they tied it back into captain universe so it was really solid. It works out well, but it's one of those things where they had a lot of buildup. It wasn't one of those 90s moments where they're just like, here's a whole set of new powers. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah. the 90s. You just had to move on to the next issue. So. I, yeah, I have a really soft spot for the 80s and 90s just because they're ridiculous in a lot of ways. But I mean, we, <laughs> we've talked a lot about about the the 80s and 90s series so far like the new guardians that's still one of my favorite episodes that we did 
the new <laughs> Guardians. Oh my gosh, what a train wreck. That, yeah, no, I mean, just like in an interesting and like surprising way. Yeah, that. I'll have to go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> it's a thing. Okay, well, let's move on to Brain Wrinkles, which is the one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that's been stuck in our heads lately. So, Jess, why don't you start us off? Yeah, absolutely. There's been a little bit more distribution drama in the comics industry recently. Mm. Marvel recently switched distribution companies from Diamond to Penguin Random House, and evidently the first week of Marvel shipments didn't go well um about 70 percent of the shipments either went missing or were incredibly damaged upon arrival and we already are having an issue with you know distribution with the logistics of you know the what was going on with the suez canal and you know a, a lot of different things that are delaying books getting there so now this is just one more piece of the delay that i know that you know, as a retailer, I'm sure it's difficult right now to begin with, with the virus and then not having your shipments come in and not being able to sell your product. I mean, I want the comics industry to do well, <laughs> you know. So they had also previously apparently received feedback from at least one retailer prior to Marvel's first shipment and specifications on how comics had been shipped through Diamond to kind of give Penguin a, a chance to you know, grow and learn a little bit. And it does feel like growing pains, but unfortunately, potentially a lack of understanding or research when they kind of started it up. Hmm. However, Penguin Random House has issued a statement to the businesses apologizing for the issues and committing to finding the best packaging and delivering method to ensure consistent deliveries of intact products. <laughs> so hopefully we won't be hearing too much more about this. <laughs> oh, man, I'm worried about the latest issues that arrived at Brian's then. Because it's been about a month since I was yeah. able to pick up my pull list. Huh. Yeah, we'll have to ask him about that, huh? Yeah. Uh, I have to go to Outer Plains too often to ask them. I just got a gift certificate there for my birthday. I'm very excited. <gasps> happy, happy belated. Oh. <laughs> I'm old now. Okay, so Dan, how about you? Uh, well, two things you know, occurred to me when you guys uh, forwarded me these questions and thank you for that just give me a moment to, to think about it yeah. um you know one is just i think it's a little bit about distribution maybe but i'm really interested where comics seem to be exploring different outlets online mm -hmm. uh, especially in the newsletter space i'm sure you guys have been tracking especially substack has been pushing very hard for comics authors to become a bigger part of their platform Mm -hmm. you know, they're all about writers. They're all about expressing yourself. And so they've offered up, uh, apparently, quite lucrative deals to some well-known comics creators mm -hmm. to come over to their platform and create new properties there, which are going to be offered in this newsletter form, TBD, whether that's just straight up PDFs or you know one page after another. I think they're probably going to be exploring how that is. So it's not quite Webtoons. It's certainly not like a comicsology sort of model, but it's giving uh, a lot of these prominent creators uh, pause and then they're accepting deals and they're stepping away from high profile titles like Daredevil and, and Batman. And they're going over to do their own comics here where they will own the rights. They'll give a, you know, a relatively small amount back to Substack for the subscription fees. 
of people signing up, but they'll own the rights and they'll be able to do whatever they want after that. If they want to go and do a published version or another PDF version here or whatever, that, to me, that opens up amazing possibilities, not just for those prominent creators, but for how other people can think about how they want to represent comic style stories. And I think that's been a very limiting thing is, you know, for a lot of people, how do I get it published? What can I do? And do I go only after the big publisher? No, there's Kickstarter. Okay. I can do a Kickstarter. Maybe it gets funded. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe this is another way. So I'm intrigued by that. You know, the other thing just sticks in my head is we're seeing a lot more, obviously comic properties that are fueling culture. And even the horror ones, you know, you were talking about up front with these, these longer titles, you know, something's killing the children, the one I want to look up, you know, a nice house on the lake, you know, some of these other things, you know, the titles are becoming book-like mm-hmm. and even the design of the comics are becoming book-like, the logos and such. Yeah. But as these things are then, I don't know if they're consciously being done to sell them to Netflix or some streaming service, but there's certainly a lot of them moving into these things that are fueling pop culture, right? Sweet Tooth, you know, Mm -hmm. most recently. And I would like to see more of those properties as they make that transition, do the callbacks to the source material, right? It's been my big thing I've knitted on with Marvel and, you know, forever is like, why don't you have at the end, you know, not just like Thor will return, but read the continuing adventures of Thor in. Mm. It costs you nothing, right? And yet it it sort of gives a callback to people who don't know about this that this is where this idea came from. The genesis was in this format and in this medium that allowed for some type of exploration of idea and synergy that didn't necessarily come from Hollywood, right? Because you get back to that thing, well, the only people who can tell stories are people who who were trained in, in Hollywood storytelling. And clearly, since Hollywood is now mining comics like mad, (laughs) it says something about the uniqueness of you know, this friction and friction of how these ideas are created over here. So I think that's something that would be interesting. And those of us in the know, you know, should maybe spend a little more time stirring the pot to remind folks mm. that, well, yeah, that's great. And it's terrific. And boy, that show's wonderful. But it started over here. Yeah. Soapbox I, off. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, we're both nodding vigorously along with this. We think that's... Yeah. That's, you know, I think that's a very valid perspective. Yeah. Um, and also but, that's one of the reasons we're here <laughs> to bring more comics to light. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I have been thinking more about how it really feels like we're in another boom period for horror comics. Like the majority of my pull from Brian's comics and Petaluma is horror titles. And it's the ones that I was mentioning earlier. Something is killing the children, the nice house on the lake. Kyron Gillen's Once in Future, which is like a dark fantasy horror take on Arthurian legends, Hmm. um, which is also excellent. But I don't think we would have had the opportunity to get comics like this if the Comics Code Authority was still around. And it just it sort of drove home to me how industries will absolutely hobble themselves creatively when they're the focus of a moral panic. Mm -hmm. And. It's just, it's something that's really been kind of sticking to me as I was doing research for this episode. And again, going back to my history in video games, where we saw kind of our own version of the comics code, where it's the ESRB ratings. And, you know, if you don't have an ESRB rating or your game had a rating higher than M, they wouldn't sell it in stores. Hmm. So just food for thought and how I'm really glad that the comics code is 
no longer a thing. Do you think it's even clearly there are still people who want to be lightning rods? There's mm-hmm. that person who wants to be the new Frank Wortham and the new Joe Lieberman, who's you know a senator yeah. from my home state who I despise for the reasons of things he did there that <laughs> that way. But but you know to me it's and those people can still stir the pot, right? They can still right. get on some reactionary you know news thing and make issues. But it seems like the restrictive ability is less than it was. Right. Yeah. If you didn't get that comics code authority back in the eighties or nineties, there was nobody else who could put that comic out. There was right. no other way to get your music out except through the regular publishers, no other way to get your game out except through GameStop or, or whatever. But now you want to piss on my game. Great. I'm putting it up on steam. Yeah. Right. You want to like act like my music is incendiary. Well, you just made my sales go up and I just put it out on Spotify, you know, or my own Patreon thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yes, thank God there aren't those things, but you know, notwithstanding the hands made tale becoming like real, <laughs> you know, there's more opportunity for people to be able to come out with very unique yes. visions and challenges and excite us. I, I completely agree. I think it's one of the instances of the free market actually doing what it's supposed to. Mm. And, you know, people, politicians especially love to tout the free market in all the wrong ways, but I, I think in terms of media and media consumption, the free market has made things arguably mainly better in terms of getting content out that would rub certain people the wrong way. And, and also the freedom of distribution channels, right? Yeah. I and mean, the ability to get something out there that's extraordinarily professional looking, but it does not require that I have to go through this narrow gate. Yeah, I mean, our show is a perfect example of that. Like, you know, 10 years ago, getting a podcast up and running, you know, was incredibly intimidating. And these days mm-hmm. it's pretty simple. Right. You know? And right. granted, there's still a learning curve, which if you go back and listen to our early episodes, you can hear it. It's rough, <laughs> but, but I'd like to think that we sound a lot better these days, but. Yeah, no, I think you guys sounded pretty good from episode one. Uh, oh, thank so you. That is a perfect example. And you know, the ability to move something forward, you still got to do all the work around it, right? You got to promote it and all that kind of stuff. I, I just think there's so much more room for the accessibility of finding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the audience has increased just in that way. You have people who have the internet. They're able to go on and search for these things instead of needing to have a comic book shop near them or needing to have a movie theater near them. Usually people have the ability to have the internet where we're at these days, which is just, it, it truly does open it up for the audience as well. But that also improves things for the creators right. in getting their name out as well. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for for taking time out of your day to come and talk with us. This was super exciting for both of us. I mean, like I said, you're our first official guest on the show. You set the bar really high. (laughs) As well, I should. Well, no, thank you both. This was a really enjoyable conversation and digging into something that's a big favorite of mine as well. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, and Dan Chichester, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound, and today's intro also featured gothic horror from, from Purple Planet Music. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find on Instagram as Look Mom Draws. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica is Jessica with A, and Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. Dan, that's me, is DG Chichester on Twitter, and you can also find me at storymaze.substack.com. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.